This evening we want to look at verses 8 and 9 of the Epistle to Jude. But I wanted to remind you of the broader structural context. So I've included a copy of the structural outline that we used in handout number 3 of our study on the Epistle of Jude. Because I want you to see the position of these two verses in the broader structure of the letter. We've been working for the last few weeks on that redemptive historical sandwich in verses 5 to 16. You may recall that when we outlined this pattern of the symmetry of the structure of this letter, we placed these two sections, which have to do with the Old Testament history of redemption, in between the sections which deal with the believing community. That is, the faithful community to which Jude is addressing this epistle, whom he notes in verses 1 to 3, and then in verses 17 through 25. Now, uh, within that uh, frame of the believers at the beginning and end of this letter, he talks about the unbelievers who have infiltrated this community, the intruders, But he describes them in relationship to patterns from the Old Testament. And in that, he uses three examples twice over. He uses three examples from the Old Testament in verses 5 to 7. And he uses three examples from the Old Testament in verse 11. So, with respect to the believing community, verses 1 to 3, verses 17 to 25... There is this interloping, unbelieving community, antithetical to that believing community. So this redemptive historical sandwich is an exposition of the antithesis of faith within this Christian community. In other words, they've infiltrated and insinuated themselves into the believing uh, congregation. Now, as we examine uh, this first sandwich, name this first part of the sandwich, verses 5 to 10, we notice that in verses 8 and 9 and verse 10, we have a small chiasm. I want to expand upon that in a moment, but I want you to notice that the center of the sandwich, part 1, is an Old Testament figure. The center of the sandwich, part two, is an Old Testament figure. Michael and Enoch are prominent Old Testament figures. Now, why choose Michael and Enoch as the antithesis to the Old Testament examples, which are unbelieving figures or negative figures in verses 5 to 7 and verse 11? Well, let's notice something about Michael. Michael is an angelic figure. He is a heavenly figure. Enoch is a prophetic figure, at least as Jude uses him in this epistle. He is also a heavenly figure, is he not? Why do I say that Enoch is a heavenly figure? Mark, go ahead, Robert. He went bodily into heaven. He was assumed bodily into heaven. He was raptured into heaven when the Lord took him. So he is a heavenly figure insofar as he did not die a physical death and was taken directly into glory. So the antithesis of the antithesis, 
what we have is the antithesis of these unbelievers infiltrating this community in verses 5 to 16. But we also have an antithesis to the antithesis. We have a positive character, two positive characters to sort of counterbalance the negative characters. All right, now, why Michael and Enoch? In addition to the fact that they're Old Testament figures, or shall I say prominently Old Testament figures, and not restricted to the Old Testament, but they're prominently Old Testament figures. Why those two? Well, let's think for a moment about the intertestamental period. Let's think for a moment of the period between Malachi and Matthew, about 400 years. Malachi is about 400 B.C. We'll say Matthew is 0 A.D. for the sake of discussion. So between Malachi and Matthew, Judaism continues. There's no revelation from God. That is, no special revelation from God. Revelation ceases with the revelation of Malachi. He is the last Old Testament writing figure who writes by direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. However, in that intertestamental period, there are other Jewish writings. They are called Jewish Apocrypha. Now, there are some versions of the Bible that have these apocryphal works. Particularly, the Roman Catholic Bible uses them as canonical scripture. They believe they are inspired. No Protestants believe that. And there are others who accept them with more or less uh, uh, prominence for purposes of study and reading, and that includes the Lutherans and the Episcopalians, although they don't regard them as inspired scripture. What's going on then with this literature of the intertestamental period, this Jewish apocryphal material? Well, in that literature, quite often, prominently featured are Michael and Enoch. In fact, there are three apocryphal books, Jewish apocrypha, attributed to Enoch, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch. The 3rd Enoch probably is too late, but 1st and 2nd Enoch are probably close to the 2nd century B.C., 1st century A.D. So why does Jude use these two figures? as a kind of counter to this negative element that has infiltrated the community to which he is writing. Remember, we said that this epistle is probably directed to Palestinian Jews. This is a Palestinian Judaistic Christian community. That is, they've been converted out of Palestinian Judaism, perhaps right around the region of Nazareth where Jesus and his brother Jude grew up. Consequently, the community is steeped, or shall we say, familiar with that intertestamental Jewish literature. Perhaps they even knew the apocryphal work of first and second Enoch. In addition, there are these bizarre prophetic works from this intertestamental period, which include Michael in the role of a kind of captain and champion of Israel's military hopes and aspirations. All right, now, Jude, then, in using these two figures, is potentially appealing to figures who are well-known in Jewish superstition and lore, okay? Apocryphal superstition and lore, rabbinical lore. But he's doing so not to endorse that rabbinical or superstitious lore, that rabbinical lore. He's doing so to feature them 
prominently and positively according to the truth of divine inspiration. So it is conceivable that Michael and Enoch in this letter are chosen by the writer Jude because in the community of the Palestinian Jewish Christians, they've converted to Christianity, they're out of a Palestinian Judaist background, Judaistic background. In this community, there is an awareness of the popularity of Michael and Enoch as apocryphal or uh, legendary or heroic characters. And Jude is, in a way, uh, taking advantage of that without endorsing it. Okay? All right. So, this popular intertestamental kind of Judaism provides a background for the, uh, the mention of Michael and the mention of Enoch in this positive section of the antithetical, of this negative section of the epistle. Which brings us now to the second page that you have in front of you, namely the small chiasm in verses 8, 9, and 10. Now this evening, we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9. And you'll notice that I've outlined that chiasm with an A, B, A prime uh, uh, structure at the top of that second page of your outline, uh, where I've also included the uh, key words which uh, are undergird or reinforce that chiasm. And you'll notice that in the A, A prime section, we have a symmetry of parallelism with the Greek word hutoi, which means these men. It's repeated in verse 8. It's repeated again in verse 9. It forms a framed symmetrical bracket around verse 9. I'm sorry, it occurs again in verse 10. It it forms a bracket around verse 9. And you also notice that there is a word revile that occurs in verse 8 and again in verse 10. It actually occurs in a verb participial form in verse 9. And that word literally in the Greek is blaspheme. So we have a number of similarities, a number of duplications. We actually have in this, in these three verses, something we noted before that Jude likes these triads. He likes these triplets. Okay. So he uses the word revile or blaspheme three times in the space of these three verses. And he frames Michael as the sandwich between the symmetry of the these men, namely the interlopers who are the outsiders who have become insiders and are subverting this Christian community from within. All right, now, uh, since Michael is sandwiched in between, what is the purpose of framing him with these men, the Hutoi? You'll notice I put a blank there besides Michael's name, under the letter B. These men, verse 8, are reviling or blaspheming. These men, verse 10, are reviling or blaspheming again. What about Michael? He is ook. Pete, what's ook? He is not railing or reviling. So the sandwich is uh, contrastive. 
In fact, the sandwich is antithetical. Once again, we have an antithesis within the antithesis of this uh, larger structural unit. So while these men revile, Michael does not. He does not rail or blaspheme. This is a well-constructed unit. It is a small three-verse unit of a larger epistle, but you'll notice how he carefully crafts it. He crafts it in such a way as to symmetrically sandwich Michael in antithesis to the interlopers who are subverting the community with their blasphemy. Any questions? You still with me? All right, now... In verse 8, we mentioned this verse before, particularly the word dreaming, and made a suggestion about what this word meant. Now, here I'm asking for total recall from you. Do you remember what we said? Now, no senior excuses. Yes, Marge? Very good. Uh, Marge is exactly right. We had suggested, this is a suggestion, okay, that the word dreaming here refers to the fact that these interlopers, that is those that have come into the community and uh, made an appeal to draw this community away from the truth of the gospel, the truth once for all delivered to the saints, these people are claiming that power or that right on the basis of special revelations, Now, there's something else that may be involved here. Because of Michael, in between these men in verses 8 and 10, it is conceivable that their dreaming also includes what? What is Michael? He's an angel. He is an angel. So, what might they be claiming? Special revelations by way of angelic visitation. Right, yes. And of course, if you know some superstitious Christians, they think that angels come to them routinely. And Roman Catholics, of course, make great uh, practice of endorsing this kind of thing. All right, so it is conceivable that these intruders... Also, in addition to saying they have special revelations and therefore that cancels out the revelation that Jude and, in fact, the apostles have been handing on to this community, they may also be claiming angelic visitations, possibly. Okay, this is a suggestion. We don't really know much more than this word, and so we're left to kind of uh, speculate as to what it is. But it certainly has something to do with them claiming higher ground, Higher ground than the gospel tradition that has been brought to them. Higher ground than even the Lord and Master Jesus Christ who is mentioned in verse 4. All right, so these dreamers and their special revelation, whether it's angelic visitation or not, are teaching that which is contrary to the apostolic doctrine. That's the reason Jude, in verse 3, urges this community to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
Now, there's another suggestion which we also made when we talked about this word. <clears throat> that is that these intro- intruders may be claiming charismatic gifts, which we t- would be consistent with the claim to have special revelation, particularly the special revelation of prophecy and exorcism and miraculous powers. <clears throat> That's possible as well. All right now, with respect <clears throat> to these men and what uh, is involved in their dreaming, it authenticates their, uh, uh, verse 8, their authority, their authority and their blasphemy, as well as their defilement. All right, now let's take a look at some of the vocabulary here, and I've given you the Greek terms for it because they're somewhat suggestive in their own right. The first word is, tra- is pronounced kyriotete, kyriotata. Now, in that word, you see a word that uh, singers in our midst may recognize. And I'm going to ask Kay if she's ever sung the Kyria Eleazon. Yes. Yes, the Kyria Eleazon. Loretta, have you sung a Kyria Eleazon? Sounds familiar. Not familiar with it. Okay. Uh, Kay, in what context? Kyria Eleazon. Yes, it's part of the Requiem Mass, correct. <clears throat> it's actually part of the Creed. What does it mean? Do you remember? Kyria. <clears throat> Bob, do you know? I can't remember something about uh, Lord. Yes, Kyria means Lord in Greek, okay? And what's the eleison? Pete? Have mercy. Yes, Lord have mercy. Kyria eleison. So you see, you see the word Lord in that kyrioteta, in that Greek uh, uh, phrase used here in verse 8. And here it's translated authority. We could also translate it lordship. They reject the authority and lordship of Christ. Verse 4, he is Lord and master. They are antithetical to that. They are rejecting that. So they rebel and reject him as Lord and Master in their lifestyle, that is the way they live, and in the way they teach, and in the way they relate. Lord, in the sense of submitting to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus, is not what these men are about. This does not define them. They reject that. Now, the second Greek word to note in this verse is doxos. What does doxos sound like? Do you do any doxosing? Sounds like a doxology. What's a doxology? Statement of doctrine. Pardon? A statement of doctrine. No, not really. What's a doxology? Praise. What's that? Praise. Praise, yes. What's the most famous doxology that you know? Loretta, what's the most famous one that you know? Praise God from whom all Yes, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I hope that the members of Linwood Church can say that. You virtually sing it every Sunday after the sermon. So, at any rate... It is a doxology, which means praise. Doxos is the Latin, a Greek word for praise. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> that word is what is translated in the New American Standard as two words. 
angelic majesties. Now, as to the end of the verse, do you, any of your versions have something different than angelic majesties? Art? Celestial beings, anything else? All right, well, if you have a New American Standard, you actually have a footnote on the two words, angelic majesties. The marginal reading of the New American Standard is another reason the New American Standard is a superior translation, because it actually gives you the literal Greek in the margin. It says glories. (coughs) Glories. They revile glories. Well, what are these glories? Well, the clue is given in the paraphrase or the expansion, celestial beings, angelic majesties. These are beings of glory. So they revile glories, meaning beings of glory, angelic beings of glory. Like whom? Like Michael. Very good. Like Michael and like those angels who rebelled against the Lord of glory. Notice verse 24 of this epistle. The doxa of God's own dwelling place. The glory of God's own dwelling place. All right, so these men revile or blaspheme the beings of glory, the Lord of glory, the arena of glory, the heaven of glory. They revile it, blaspheme it, rebel against it, and receive the opposite of that glory as their just reward. Now, the third word in this eighth verse is blasphemousen. Now, you can see the English word blaspheme in there, and that is it's a literal English takeover from Greek. It is what's translated in the New American Standard as revile throughout these three verses. All right, now, here's another triad. We've noted that Jude loves these triplets, and here are three words in this verse which reflect in triplicate. All right, now, does the phrase same manner in verse 8, yet in the same manner these men, does that phrase, which is reflexive, same manner is reflexive, that it looks, it reflects back on something, is it reflexive of verse 7, is it looking back, is the same manner, the same manner of those in verse 7, or is it reflexive of all three verses before verse 8, namely 5, 6, and 7? This is an interesting exegetical question. This is an interesting question of interpretation to consider. So let's think it through beginning with verse 7. For instance, the triad, defile the flesh, reject authority, revile or blaspheme glories or angelic majesties. If it refers to verse 7, how is it specifically indicating elements or the drama of the seventh verse. Let's start with the phrase, defile the flesh. If the reflex of verse 8, namely the phrase, defile the flesh, is referring to verse 7, what's it referring to in verse 7? Anyone? Sexual immorality? Homosexuality. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Yes, sexual immorality, specifically homosexual immorality. All right, now, what would reject authority be in verse 7 if it's reflecting the drama of the 7th verse only? What did we say about the character of homosexuality and its immorality, its immoral nature last week? It is a rejection of God's order of nature. It is a rejection of the authority of God's pattern of creation. It is a rejection of the natural use of sexual organs for an unnatural use. So they reject the authority of the order of creation. They reject the authority of the order of nature. They reject the authority of the pattern of God's created order. That is conceivable what uh, that phrase means if it's reflexive of verse 7 only. Now the third phrase, the last phrase of the triplet, the triplet rather, is they blaspheme. They blaspheme glories or angelic majesties. Now, if that refers to verse 7, what might the writer Jude have in mind? Yes. How would it be blaspheming them? Why would Sodom and Gomorrah people blaspheme them? These men relations with them. Yes, they wanted sexual relations with other men, which would have degraded that majesty of the angels. Uh, first of all, because the angels do not have any sexual parts anyway, but also because they would have been attacking them as angelic majesty, angelic glories. So it is conceivable that... Each of the th- uh, three parts of this triad in verse 8 can reflect upon the, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7 alone. That is a possibility. Now let's consider the other exegetical possibility. Let us consider the fact that this eighth verse is reflexive of the previous three verses. In other words, there's something in this triad... Of, word, of phrases in verse 8 that is specific to something in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. Let's begin with defile the flesh again. If that is reflexive of verse 5, 6, and 7, to what verse does it refer and what act? We're back to the immorality yeah. of verse 7. You are back to the immorality of verse 7. It's the same thing in this case as it would be in the previous case if only verse 7 is in view. Defiling the flesh refers to the homosexual lust of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, but what about reject authority or reject the lordship of God? Verse 5, how so? Very good, Bob. How so? Well, the uh, people that came out of uh, out of Egypt did not believe and rejected the Lord and couldn't enter the Promised Land. Rejected his what? 
His authority in terms of his promise that he would give them that land and by his own sovereign disposition. So, uh, having rebelled against that, what happened to them, Bob? Well, they couldn't enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. So, rejecting authority here could refer, as Bob pointed out, to that wilderness generation who rejected the authority and power and promise of God through an evil heart of unbelief. So that that phrase in verse 8 could go all the way back to verse 5, which leaves blaspheme glories. And obviously there's only one option left, right? What verse? Anyone? Verse 6, the only thing left. (laughs) Okay, on your bingo card, it's the only one left, right? When you got all, all, all the other ones filled in, you've the only one left, all right? All right, verse 6. They revile or blaspheme glories, angelic majesties. This is a reference to the rebel angels in verse 6. The damned angels who blasphemed and reviled God's domain, God's abode, God's heaven, God's gift to them of perfect liberty, eternal light, and eternal life. They reviled it, they blasphemed it, they rebelled against it, they hated it, and they continue to hate it with every ounce of their being in the pit of hell today. And they will forever. Do not minimize the neutrality of the demons. Satan is not a neutral agent. He is full of passion, the passion of intense hatred against Almighty God, against every Christian, against the kingdom of heaven, and against the glory of the Son of the Most High. He despises it. And even on the day when Christ makes him kneel before him in the final judgment, he will kneel out of compulsion and coercion and recognition and submission that it is due, but he will hate the fact that he has to bend his knee and do it. And will go in to the lake of fire hating, eternally hating. Now, you and I have been in close contact from time to time with people who are consumed with hatred. It's a very difficult pattern of bondage to break because their whole life is focused on that intense, welled-up enmity, whether it's against an institution, whether it's against an individual, whether it's against a family, whatever. Extrapolate that experience in terms of eternity. A relentless and never-ending enmity, hatred, and bitterness. And not with any remission or intermission. Those persons whom we have encountered go to sleep they intermit. They have an intermission from their positive, passionate hatred. Not so with the demons of hell. There is no intermission. They never go to sleep. 
They never stop hating. They never rest from their hating. And as they hate, they are hated in return. For every being in hell hates every other being in hell. It is a place of eternal mutual hatred. There is a communion of hatred in hell, even as there is a communion of love and charity in heaven. All right, now, any questions about the triad? Yes, go ahead. Okay. I feel very bold. Well, well, Luther said sin boldly, so I'm not suggesting that you're sinning, Kay, but be bold. Why can't the these men of verse 8 refer to the people in verse 4 who have crept in? It does. It is the same group, okay? So you're right. These men are that group. So are you, so uh, you're suggesting we'll skip over verse 7, 6, 5, and go all the way back to verse 4. Well, I had not even thought about that. So good for you. That, there's your there's your boldness, which may ultimately be right. I, I, as I think about it, I don't think so, because I think it's more, I think it's more proximate than remote. Okay? And I, think, I think it's more near at hand. But nonetheless, uh, since verse 4 does share the same population, the same group, it is conceivable that it can go all the way back there, too. So I'll have to rethink that a little bit. I may have to go back four verses instead of just three. <clears throat> now, as, as you uh, have heard, perhaps from my answer to Kay, I, I favor the five, six, seven uh, uh, reflex, <clears throat> but I'm not dogmatic about it. I can't prove it. Th- these are interpretive or exegetical suggestions about what may be the antecedent for this same manner in verse 8. <clears throat> and so uh, Kay's suggestion is as good an option as any other, and certainly worth considering in more detail than I have. Any other bold or timid questions or comments? Yes, Scott. I'll, I'll come back to you, Bob. In favor of your exegetical argument, notice he says, in the same way these men. Because if you go back to verse 4, it's referring directly to these men, so that the other verses that you pointed out are talking about other people besides these men, so it would make sense to say, in the same manner, these men. I, I thank you for the assistance of my professor of New Testament there. Once again, a suggestion which is, <laughs> is not the law of the Medes and the Persians. Yes, Bob. Well, it looks like maybe he's doing both. He's, he's including these certain men along with these this general men. And he's referring back to both kinds of men, maybe. Very good. Very good. So you, you, your suggestion is it's a general and particular reflex, okay? These men in general, verse 4, and the particular examples of it in verses 5, 6, and 7. That's a very good suggestion as well. Okay, you've got someone coming to your aid. He happens to be your husband, but I'm sure he's done that before. Good for, good for him. It, we'll call them the dynamic duo. Any other comments? All right, then we're ready to go on to verse 9 and the matter of Michael.
Now, Michael is identified there. I know you can all read your Bible. It says what? He's an archangel. He's an archangel. But did you know that this is the only place in the Bible where he is called the archangel? This is the only place in all of Scripture where Michael is given his title. He is called a ty- he is called an angel. He is called in the book of Daniel a prince, which is appropriate to that era of the post-exilic experience of Judah in captivity. But here is the only place in the whole Bible where he's called arch- archangel. Now, what does this prefix arch mean? Overall. Close, no cigar yet. High. High, no cigar yet. First among equals. Uh, Getting closer. I'll give you a cigarette. No, I won't give you that either. I'll give you one of these electric cigarettes. Pete. No. Chief. Chief or principal. High was close. Uh, What did you say, Robin? Yes, first. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's good, too. But uh, the prefix arch here means chief or principal. So he is the chief angel. He's the head of the angelic host uh, in heaven. Now, this verse is creating a character con- character contrast or a characterization contrast. When I say contrast, I'm meaning it's placing one character over against another. So, Michael is being placed over against whom in this verse? The devil. The devil or Satan. All right, so Michael and the devil or Satan are being contrasted. All right, now, this contrast is between what kind of beings? Spiritual. They are spiritual beings. Say more. They're both angels. They're angelic beings. Say more. They're both chiefs. They're They're both chiefs. They're both chiefs. Mm, All right. I'll accept that. Say more. Yes, there's there's a they're opposite one. They're antithetical to one another. Okay. Say more. They're spiritual beings. They're angelic beings. They are created beings. They are created beings. All right, so the contrast here is between two creatures, is it not? Or at least if we're dealing with the symmetry of the character uh, comparison here, character contrast here, the symmetry is the symmetry of two creatures, two angelic creatures, as you pointed out. One good angelic creature and one bad angelic creature, but still two angelic creatures. All right, now, do you see where I'm going? This is not a contrast between a non-creature and a creature. Now, why do I say that? 
This is not a contrast between a non-creature and a creature. Who would be a non-creature? Christ, God, etc. Okay, so this is not a contrast between a non-creature and a creature. It is not a contrast between Christ and a creature. It is a contrast between two creatures. This is a symmetry of contrast, a symmetry of contrastive beings, same order of being, angelic being. Granted, the moral differentiation is therefore a contrast as well. One is righteous, one is uh, is unrighteous, but this is not a contrast between the uncreated being of the Son of God and an angelic created being, namely Satan. Michael is not the Son of God in pre-incarnate form. This verse says it's impossible. It is impossible. Else Jude's symmetry is destroyed. Now, as if that were not enough to settle it, we turn back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6. I'm sorry, 16. And... When you have it, please read it out. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Somebody's coming with Christ, isn't he? Who's coming with him? The archangel. Who's the archangel? Michael. We know the archangel is Michael. So, Christ and the archangel, according to the First Thessalonians 4.16, are not the same thing. They're not the same being. They're not the same persons. They are distinct beings. Christ is God. Michael is not. Two distinct beings, a God being and an angel being in First Thessalonians 4.16. God the Lord and the archangel, a Distinction, then, between the creature and the creator. A distinction, then, between the angel and God who made him. A distinction, then, between the archangel and the one who made the archangel. He is not to be identified with the archangel. Now, I make this point because there are a number of commentators and a number of of evangelicals even who believe that Michael is the son of God in the Old Testament appearances in pre-incarnate form and that in the book of Zechariah which is being cited here in terms of the response that Michael makes he is appearing to the prophet Zechariah in a vision in Zechariah chapter 12. Is that the right? Is that the right verse? Uh, Zechariah chapter three. I'm sorry, chapter three, verse two of Zechariah. Yes, go ahead, Robert. Uh, I've heard uh, Gabriel referred to as an archangel, also, but I, there's no place in the Bible that says that. No, not, uh, no, there's not. He is an angel, but not an archangel. 
Robert? Well, the thing that sort of caught my attention there is that the dead in Christ will rise first. And part of that dead in Christ is Moses. And so you have the dead in Christ who rise first and the archangel disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. Interesting association. Death in both instances. Very good. Any other comments at this point? Yes, go ahead, Robert. Um, It seems to me that angels have different hierarchies also. And so Michael would be an archangel over all of those or over a specific genre of angels? I believe he's the uh, the commander or over all of them, cherubim, seraphim, and ordinary angels. Now, I, I can't turn you to a verse where that is, is there, but as, as this uh, term archangel means chief or principal, then I see him as the commander of the host over all the host of the angels, even those that guard the throne of God, name with the cherubim, and whatever the seraphim do. They're only mentioned, I think, once in the Bible, and we, we really don't know a whole lot about them. There's a lot of speculation about them. But uh, the scripture doesn't help us a whole lot. Art, you look like you have a question. Yeah. Uh, is the point of this verse 9 that the archangel Michael recognized that he did not have the authority to rebuke the devil? And, but he said only God does. And that's why he says God, uh, the Lord rebuked you. Yes, that's true. You, you've summarized the whole second part of my presentation well, tonight. obvious that the argument of Michael is not God. Good point. All right, well, uh, we take a break and come back to deal more with this verse, which has a, a very long history of suggestions, interpretation, misinterpretations, etc. All right, we're back to verse 9, second page of the handout. We want to ask the question about this comment in verse 9. Where is the narrative of Satan's dispute with Michael over Moses' body? Okay, so the first option as we consider that question is the Old Testament. What do you say, Loretta? She's looking at her marginal notes. That, that's perfectly legitimate. That's what you have a marginal reference Bible for. Is this a story you remember reading? All right, then we'll say because Loretta hasn't read it, it's not in the Old Testament. Lois? The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Let's hold off on that. We're talking about the Old Testament first. It is not in the Old Testament, exactly. All right, so it's not there. Is it in any other book, Robert? It seems to me the only Old Testament reference is it says that God Himself buried Moses. Okay. 
So, okay, well, we'll leave that. We'll come back to that, Robert. That's good. Right now, it's not in the Old Testament. At least there's no Old Testament literal story about an argument of Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. Okay? Is it in any other book? Now we come back to Lois's comment. She said the Apocrypha. Now, Lois, do you know that it's in the Apocrypha? Or are you just... No, you said you, something at the beginning. You, I use the word Apocrypha word. So, 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 so you're, you're, you're stealing my comment. Well, good for you. You want to be a student in my classes? You come along. All right. Uh, Apocrypha. Is it in the Apocrypha? I know there aren't many of you here that have read the Apocrypha. And when we say Apocrypha, remember that there is a lot more apocryphal literature than just what is included between Malachi and Matthew in a Roman Catholic Bible. The apocryphal works of the Old Testament. Would it be in uh, some of the extra-biblical works, uh, maybe like Josephus or something like that? Or in... uh uh, some, uh, uh, maybe some uh, rabbinical works, Jewish rabbinical works? Good, good, good suggestion. And the answer, again, is no. It is in no other work. Well, <clears throat> there are allegations from very impressive scholars, including one famous alleged evangelical, Richard Bauckham, and his very detailed commentary on the Epistle of Jude, amongst other even Reformed commentators, who suggest that the Testament of Moses, which may be the same as the Assumption of Moses, two Jewish apocryphal works, is the source of this story. That's the allegation. I want you to understand that these two works, or the question of whether they're actually the same work with two different names, that's another debate. So uh, keep in mind that there may be two separate works, or they may be the same work by two different names. That's the allegation that this narrative that's in verse 9, that there was an argument over the body of Moses between Michael and Satan comes from the testament of Moses, or the assumption of Moses, or both. All right, now we want to examine that suggestion. In other words, we want to take down the oldest manuscript of the Jewish apocryphal work, the testament of Moses. What is the oldest manuscript that we have of this book? MS means manuscript. What is the oldest manuscript? It is a 6th century A.D. manuscript. 6th century A.D. What year is that? 6th century. 500 something. Yes, 500. This is the 21st century. Okay, so we're always a century ahead of our actual date. Okay, so... The oldest manuscript that we have of this work is the 6th century, A.D., not B.C., A.D. All right, now, 
is this a Hebrew manuscript that we have? Is it a Jewish Hebrew manuscript that we have of the Assumption of Moses? No, it is not. Is it an Aramaic manuscript of this apocryphal work? No, is it not? No, it is not. Is it a Greek manuscript of this work? No, it is not. What language is it in? It is in Latin. It is a Latin manuscript of the Assumption of Moses. Now, the end of this manuscript, the end of the fragment, the end of of the Assumption of Moses that we have, it is fragmentary because the end is missing. The end of the book is missing. However, from that missing section of the Assumption of Moses, virtually all commentators, liberal and conservative alike, say that this story in verse 9 of the argument over the body of Moses comes from the Testament of Moses. It comes not only from the Testament of Moses, it comes from the missing part of the Testament of Moses. Now, Bob? And after Jude was dead. And after Jude was dead, yes. And so now, what are these scholarly commentators telling us? They are telling us that they know where this story came from from a document that does not have the story, which they invent to stick into a missing ending of that book in order to justify the fact that the story is in Jude. Now, how's that for post-hope-propter-hook? And these are PhDs. Please, save me from a PhD if that's what it gives you. Art, question. Yes. Why do they pick um, the book Assumption of Moses to make this claim? Because that's the only book that they can suggest that has this ending, that, that has this in this missing portion of the end of the book. But aren't there some other books that have parts of the Yeah, perhaps the Assumption of Moses, if it's a separate work. But it's, just, it's the same issue there. How about one of the many other manuscripts no, that No, no, no other does not occur in any other manuscript. Remember, we said up above, it does not include, occur in any other book, any other manuscript. So they resort to a blank page or a missing page or a missing series of pages. And they say, that's where the story came from. Voila, look at the magic of our scholarship. We just invented the origin of the story of the debate between Moses and Michael and Satan over Moses' body. They fabricate the story from no primary document. There is no primary document for this story except fill in the blank. Jude is exactly right. There is no primary document for this story except Jude's comment here in verse 9. 
Scott. Do you remember the assumption of Moses even as the archangel Michael in the segments that we have? I've never gotten that far because I've not settled the question of whether the assumption of Moses is equal to the testament of Moses. Okay? So I, I, I think that issue has to be resolved. Okay? Because they, they, they have the testament of Moses and they have the assumption of Moses, which has some very similar patterns in it, but there are some differences, which could be due to a recension, a very, a, a, a difference in recension. <clears throat> but they argue over whether they're the same work. So settle that question first. And then we, we, we get to the other point. But even in the assumption of Moses, you see, there's no story here about this body. Whether Michael's called the archangel or not, I'm not I don't know. All right, you with me? This is called smoke and mirror scholarship. Okay? If you can't find it anywhere else, then you invent the story from a blank page or missing page of a manuscript. Jude should be enough for us. It should be. We'll come back to that in a moment. All right, now let's go back to, to Robert's question over here a little earlier. What about contemporary, that is, we're thinking of first century A.D., what about contemporary Jewish writers? Okay, let's take Philo. Who is Philo? Anybody know who Philo is, Robert? Do you know who Philo is? Uh, I've read the name a bunch of times. I couldn't really tell you anything about him. Okay. Pete, you want to help with it? Robert, go ahead. Historian? Not a historian. Pete? Philosopher. He's a philosopher and a... Theologian. Theologian and a... Historian. No, not a historian. Not a historian. Is he Jewish? (laughs) He is a... Jewish? He is Jewish, yes. He is a Jewish commentator. He is a Jewish commentator. He, comment, he, makes, he writes commentaries on the Bible. Now, it is true, he's a philosopher too. He's a Neoplatonic philosopher. He's an Alexandrian Jew. He's a first century Jewish commentator. Now, to come back to you, Robert, what about Josephus? Uh, what century? He was born in 37 AD. So he's a first century? Yeah. Is he a Jew? Yes, he He's is. a first century Jewish what? Historian. He is a historian, correct. Very so the, yes, the distinction between Philo and Josephus is one is a commentator, a philosophical commentator, if you will, <clears throat> because he writes commentaries on the Old Testament, and the other is a historian. He actually do- goes over the history of the Old Testament, too, and Josephus has some valuable information in his Old Testament survey or his Old Testament historical retelling. Very true to the Bible in many places. In other places, it takes liberties with the Bible. But nonetheless, it's a very useful comparison for what we know about Old Testament history and intertestamental history. Very, Josephus is very important for the period of the Maccabees and so on. All right, so is this story in Philo? Who writes a commentary on Moses and his life? It is not in Philo. Is it in Josephus? who talks about the life of Moses in the Old Testament. Is it in Josephus? It is not in Josephus. Here we have first century Jews who do not know this story. Okay? Now, what about the LXX? What's the LXX? Ben? That is the Septuagint. What do you mean by the Septuagint? What is the Septuagint, Ben? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible, 
was translated into Greek when? Ben? Uh, I'm saying, I'm guessing about uh, Maybe a little earlier than that, but somewhere between 200 and 300 BC, perhaps, okay? So, why would it be translated into Greek? Because Alexander the Great had taken some Jews from Palestine to Egypt and he'd established the city of Alexandria where he built a great library and these Jews began to translate Hebrew works into Greek because Greek, after Alexander's conquest, became the lingua franca of the civilized world. It's called the Septuagint, the LXX, because it was thought that 70 translators of Jewish translators translated the Hebrew Bible into uh, Greek in a period of weeks. It's a miraculous translation. Okay. Well, there's a lot of mythology behind the Septuagint, but the bottom line is the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it is an expanded translation of the Hebrew Old Testament because it adds stuff to the Hebrew Bible that's not in the Hebrew text. So you have to be careful with the Septuagint. It's useful, but you have to use it critically. Does the Septuagint contain this story? I've already mentioned that the Septuagint take, adds material to the Old Testament, particularly adds about 10 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, for instance. <clears throat> does it have this story? It does not have this story. So it's not in the Septuagint. In other words, according to the written document, it's not known 200 B.C. or 300 B.C. in the Alexandrian Jewish community. This story is not known. The only place it's known. Answer? Jude, Jude verse 9. All right. Now, Jude alone tells us this story. And he tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit which means the story is true. It is not apocryphal. We don't need an apocryphal source for this story, do we? We don't need a Jewish manuscript that comes from outside the Bible to give us this story, do we? God has given us this, this story, excuse me, God has given us this story by direct revelation through his servant Jude, the writer of this letter. We don't need to look for empty pages or missing pages. We don't need to theorize an extra biblical source. The source of the story is here. This is sufficient for our dealing with the incident. All right. So I'm warning you, if you bought a commentary on the Epistle of Jude, and I've suggested that there are ones that you can use as laypersons, and there are also other more advanced ones if you wish. I am warning you that virtually every one of them is going to say that this story came from outside Jude, from extra-biblical sources. I'm saying bunk. Now, I'm definitely a minority of a minority on this point. There aren't many New Testament introductions that are going to agree with me, and there are virtually no commentaries that are going to agree with me. But what I want is show me the beef, will you? Where is the text? If you're going to say it comes from outside the Bible, then give me the text. Stop inventing myths about where this thing came from, from empty manuscripts or lack or, or no ending manuscripts. Don't invent stories for me. I want the document. If you come up with a document, then we'll have a, a, another discussion. 
But for me, Jude is enough. That suffices. All right, you still with me? All right, I'm just alerting you to the little game that's played out there. All right, now, the narrative. There is a story in this verse. What is it? Michael does not what? Doesn't rebuke. He does not rebuke. That's a good word. What else? He does not dare. He does not dare. He does not what else? He does not revile or blaspheme. He does not slander. He does not accuse Satan. So all of those words, he does not accuse, slander, revile, blaspheme, rebuke Satan. To do so would be an imitatio diaboli or an imitatio satane. Now, I think you can figure out what those Latin phrases mean. Imitatio diaboli. Anyone? Imitation of the devil. Imitatio satane. Anyone? Imitation of Satan. Those are genitives. The diaboli and the satane are genitives. Means of in front of the word. All right. Imitation of Satan, of, of the devil, or imitation of Satan. Michael is the opposite of Satan. Satan is a blasphemer, a reviler, a slanderer, a false accuser. That's exactly what he did in verse 6 when he was amongst those damned angels that rebelled and kept not their primary abode. Michael will not imitate him. He will not mirror him. He will not be a reflection of the Satan, the accuser, the slanderer, the reviler, the blasphemer. Michael does what? He does not slander Satan. He does what? He does use whose rebuke? He uses God's rebuke. He uses the same rebuke that God uses. He administers to Satan the words that are found in Zechariah 3.2 in the context in which uh, the high priest Joshua is accused of Satan of having defiled priestly garments. And God says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Michael uses that language. Michael rebukes Satan with God's rebuke, not his own. So the mirror relationship is Michael mirroring Satan? No, Michael mirroring the Lord God. Michael as an imitatio dei, an imitation of God. Imitatio domini, an imitation of the Lord. The narrative here is a contrastive mirror paradigm. A contrastive mirror paradigm. Who does Michael reflect? Does he reflect the accuser, the adversary, the slanderer of Almighty God? Or does he use God to slander the slanderer? Does he use God to rebuke the rebuker? Does he use God to revile the reviler? 
He uses God because he is the supreme rebuker and reviler. In the just sense of his holiness. All right, so Michael, once again, is in the role of a creature here, submissive to his Lord, maker, and creator. And he mirrors him in his dialogue with Satan. Pam. Where did you say that the Lord rebuke you is found? Zechariah 3, 2. That's where the phrase is found. All right, now we have the mirror portion of this narrative uh, spelled out. We know that there's a story here which is true because Jude's recording it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what's this argument about? They're disputing over over the body of Moses, or Satan's disputing about it. Why? Why? What do you think? It says an accusation here. Okay, what, what do you think the accusation is? About what is the accusation? Who's accusing whom? Bob? Why well, I guess. Go ahead. He's, is he trying to revise history and say there's no Moses? No, he's not doing that. Satan is aware that the body is there. So, what is he saying about that body? Robert? It seems to me that uh, when Christ was transfigured, the body of Moses was there too. Okay, so... It's like who has jurisdiction over that body. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's an argument about who has jurisdiction over it. Okay. And Satan is claiming jurisdiction? Yes. Or at least compromising the Lord's jurisdiction? On what ground of accusation? Why would Satan think that he had a basis for accusing Moses' body of something nefarious. Okay? Because Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land. Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land. Why wasn't he allowed into the promised land? Because he didn't obey God. Because he didn't obey God when? What's the specific? He struck the rock of Mirabah. Yes, in Numbers chapter 20. He gave no glory to God in striking that rock and bringing forth the water. So, is it possible... That Satan, knowing that Moses had struck the rock, had been barred from the promised land, then disputes about the body of Moses. Belongs to me. Doesn't belong to heaven. Doesn't belong to God. He's committed a crime which bars him from being buried in the promised land. Is that conceivable? It is possible. Is there any other accusation he might have lodged against Moses? Well, he refused to enter the promised land. He refused to enter the promised land? Well, Moses didn't refuse to enter the promised land. He was just barred from the promised land. Robert? He was a murderer. He was a murderer. What's the story? 
uh, when he was in Egypt originally, he, he uh, took a rock and clobbered one of the uh, overseers, Egyptian overseers. Not to show it was a rock, but at any rate, he did slay it. Whatever. Correct. And buried his body in the sand and uh, tried to hide it. All right, so Moses possibly could be saying he's a murderer. Now, murderers don't get to go into the promised land or into the heavenly promised land. So, you know, his body belongs to me. All right, now, these are suggestions which have some degree of plausibility. But if the point is that Moses is unfit for an honorable burial or he's unfit for heaven, is that true? No, it's not true. Who buried him? Robert. God himself buried him. Deuteronomy 34, verse 6. God buried Moses. And, as Robert has already pointed out, the body of Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. Which means that somehow Moses' body was materialized on the Mount of Transfiguration for the purposes of revealing himself in the glory of that theophany to Jesus and the disciples. All right. What do we conclude? We conclude that we really do not know what the specific accusation was. We have some suggestions which Satan may have used thinking they were to his advantage, namely that Moses was unfit for, shall we say, decent burial because he was a murderer or because he had uh, taken the glory of God to himself, claimed what God alone was uh, all glorious to perform, namely to bring the miraculous water out of the rock. But this verse does not tell us specifically what that charge was, the ground upon which Satan thought that he could claim or at least dispute about the body of Moses. We know that there was a dispute. We know that Satan and Michael were involved in the dispute. We know that the dispute involved the body of Moses. More than that, we do not know. And more than that is pure speculation. So here's a case in which we say, thus far and no further. We have no further information on this incident, save that it occurred. It involved an argument over the body of Moses. We do not know what the accusation was about that body, But we do know that Satan and Michael engaged in a dispute and Michael answered Satan not in terms of his mirror blasphemy and revilement, but in terms of God's judgment and rebuke to the accuser. That will shut up Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Because in standing upon that mirror relationship, you reflect God himself. It's what he says 
to Satan. And of course, in Christ Jesus, he has said it to Satan on your behalf once and for all. You don't, you lay no charge against my elect. No charge whatsoever. Because they belong to me. Body and soul. They belong to me. I bought them. I ransomed them. I gave them the life of my son for them. So that you, you satanic slanderer and accuser, you blasphemer, you will not accuse, slander, or blaspheme my sons and daughters. Any questions? We did not get to the last part of this Kaya, namely verse 10. But I promise you we will. Nonetheless, do you have any questions about the two verses that we were able to cover this evening? David. Well, it's not a question. It's, uh, it's an observation. In the military, under our judicial system, uh, somebody that's convicted of a crime and is sentenced to go to Fort Leavenworth um, does not forfeit his rank or position until uh, all appeals are exhausted. And there are there have been cases of officers, uh, lieutenant colonels that were convicted of something and end up there, and they get to wear their uniform, they get the courtesy of a military salute, and uh, they get so much space allocated to them. Even though they will suffer the full implementation of uh, the sentence for their conviction, until until all appeals are exhausted, they are entitled to all the the courtesies of uh, of their rank, and it's sort of like with Satan. We we don't we're not authorized to um, disparage him or blaspheme just because his doom is certain. Until that sentence is executed, and only God is the one that's going to execute the sentence. We, we need to uh, realize that our place is not to taunt or try and take over God's law in executing the sentence which will occur for certain. So with Michael, we will content ourselves with the Lord rebuke you. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the revelation that you have vouchsafed through your servant Jude, and we bless you the more for your own glory in this revelation vindicated from the text that we've examined this evening. We rejoice, O Lord, that you have delivered us from the bondage of defiling the flesh. You have delivered us and broken our desire to reject all authority and lordship, particularly the lordship of Jesus Christ, our gracious Redeemer. And we also thank you, Lord, that you have delivered us from any blasphemy against those 
angelic glories and majesties who have done your bidding that are who are your servants even for our good when we do not even realize it we thank you O lord for this time to struggle with these challenges of this text but most of all we thank you that what is here is infallibly true has been reliably delivered and is an accurate reflection of what has happened in time and space history that truth is the anchor and bedrock of our faith, particularly as it has occurred in the revelation of the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord, in history. We rejoice in that truth and in the redemption that comes to us through it, and we pray that as we continue to study this epistle and learn of you and of him through it, that you will encourage our hearts in faith, in love, and in peace the very benediction that Jude wished upon the community that read this epistle for the first time centuries ago. And we will ask all these things, praising your name through your Son, by the indwelling of the Spirit. Amen.